Hello, dear listener. This is Tanner here with Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. A reminder that these episodes about Ukraine and Russia are not scripted. They are reporting as quickly as events happen, as often as I can get them. Sometimes I will misspeak. Sometimes I will say things that are untrue, simply because the information that I have at the time is all that I'm being given. In the future, we may look back at things I say here and we'll realize, oh, he was totally wrong about that. But remember, I am doing this because I want people to be as updated as I am, because I'm trying to stay as updated as possible about the events that are happening and trying to report them as unbiased as I possibly can. So with that being said, please give me grace if I misspeak, and please remember that I'm trying to do my absolute best. Without further ado, enjoy this one. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot going on today. Uh, This is Tanner from Tanner Talks About Stuff That Happened. Welcome to the podcast. If this is your first time listening in, welcome. We're happy to have you here. If you've been here before, I'm happy to have you back. I'm glad you decided to come back. All right, we got a lot to get through today. So let's jump right into this. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Drop me a five-star review. Let me know you're enjoying what you're hearing. Um, I'm not going to waste much more of your time on the whole mumbo-jumbo that I start some of my more scripted podcasts with. Remember, these podcasts that I'm doing on the Russo-Ukrainian War are not scripted. I'm just putting down a bunch of notes, reading them off as I go, and following the conflict hour by hour, trying to deliver as much information to you guys as I possibly can. I know it's a lot to digest, so I'm trying to do it in a digestible format for you. So on the ground, not a lot of developments on the ground in the last 24 hours. The, the, the battle is still ongoing. The war, the battle for Kiev is actually taking a breather at the moment. Uh, the battle for Kharkiv in northeastern Ukraine is where the fiercest fighting is taking place. That city has been uh, a battleground pretty much since the war began. And, uh, but it looks like the Russians are actually pulling back from Kiev right now. Initially, uh, a lot of sources believe that the Russians were pulling back from Kiev because they were expecting a massive bombardment on the city. And it seems that tonight, uh, right now it is 6 p.m. where I am, but it is the middle of the night in Ukraine. I've seen some video of Ukraine having a large series of missiles falling into uh, Kiev. So looks like that bombardment has begun and there is there are no clashes on the ground in Kiev right now. As far as I have heard from my research, there are no ground Uh, clashes happening around that city, but around Kharkiv in northeastern Ukraine, there are still a lot of ground clashes happening. So, uh, it's interesting that these, this bombardment is happening right now because we had our first day of peace talks between the Ukraine and Russia on the, uh, Belarus-Ukraine border. The Ukrainian delegation flew into the border in a helicopter, um, It was a series of Ukrainian officials. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the leader of the Ukraine, was not among them. He stayed in Kiev, but the... Uh, the peace talks, the first day of peace talks did, did take place. Unfortunately, these peace talks were reportedly pretty fruitless. Nothing really came of them because remember Ukraine is demanding that if they went to peace talks, their demands were that you, that Russia leave Ukraine altogether. All Russian forces and Belarusian forces have to absolutely get out of Ukraine if they were to have peace and Russia, Russia's demands are not outright clear, but uh, a lot of people are believing they want the, the complete demilitar- demilitarization of the Ukraine. They want the Ukrainian president and his cabinet to step down and institute a pro-Russian government in its place to make Ukraine somewhat of a puppet state. So it looks like pretty much an impasse and people are, uh, doesn't seem like Ukraine and Russia are likely to reach a settlement on that front 
quickly, at least. And so I am not at all surprised that the first day of peace talks did not really yield anything. And it's also very obvious that Putin is very frustrated with the lack of progress in this invasion if he's already calling, uh, agreeing to go to peace talks, because... Uh, there was a Russian propaganda station that several weeks ago declared that they could take Ukraine in 11 minutes. And, um, uh, it's been a lot more than 11 minutes. In fact, we are, uh, the sun, as the sun rises in just a few hours over Kiev, they're going to be going on their sixth day of fighting and still Russia has not been able to gain a foothold in any of Ukraine's major cities, which is very unfortunate for an army that was supposed to be able to take the country in 11 minutes. However, that being said, I did say that uh, the Russian army has pulled back from Kiev. There's no on the ground fighting, but outside of Kiev, about 25 miles, maybe 30 miles outside of Kiev, there is a huge Russian convoy full of armaments and supplies. These uh, seem to be mostly supply trucks and troop transports. We're not seeing a whole lot of tanks or armored vehicles. And because, because of that, we're led to infer that what that means is uh, the Russians are planning to lay siege to Kiev. They're planning to surround the city and uh, kind of wait it out. If the Russians were planning a really intense direct assault of the city, it's likely that we'd see a lot more tanks or other armored vehicles, but we're seeing a lot of supply trucks here. And so it's very possible that, you, that Russian troops are planning to just kind of surround the city. But it is going to be interesting how they are able to accomplish that given that the Ukrainian military has put up such a staunch resistance that it's getting more and more difficult for the Russians to maintain their foothold in any ground in northern Ukraine, particularly north of Kiev. In southern Ukraine, they're gaining more, they're having a lot more success in getting further and further into the country because much, most of Ukraine's forces are focused in northern Ukraine around Kiev, but if the Russian forces continue to advance through southern Ukraine, it's going to be a very long slog through all of that territory to get to Kiev, which is still, you know, Ukraine is the size of Texas, and so it's going to be really hard for Ru the Russians to advance that far under, under constant Ukrainian ambushes, which is how we're seeing most of the battle taking place. Next item of news is that Belarus has officially joined the war. They've officially started arming their soldiers and launching missiles from Belarus into Ukraine using Belarusian tech and Belarusian armaments. Um, and it's likely that we're going to see some Belarusian soldiers going into Ukraine very soon. They have, uh, they are no longer just a staging point for Russia. They have officially joined the war. Now, Something happened in Belarus today that is a significant development in terms of the tech, uh, the cyber war going on. Now, a couple days ago, I mentioned that the hacker, the decentralized hacker group Anonymous, has declared war on Russia. Today, um, all three of Belarus's main centralized banks were completely shut down. All of their all of their funds were frozen. All of their internet was completely down. And shortly after this happened, Anonymous, the hacker group Anonymous, claimed responsibility for this. Um, I have confirmation that this did indeed happen, which means that Anonymous is not something to be messed with. It seems like they are a hacker collective that has absolutely the skills necessary to wage this cyber war that they have declared. Which, you know, I'm just glad they're on Ukraine's side. And I'm sure Ukraine is glad they're on Ukraine's side. Um, all right. One of my favorite stories that happened today, and actually I got, I got somewhat emotional reading about this today, but uh, 
Zelensky, uh, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, has established an international legion for foreign volunteers in Ukraine. He has released a statement urging anyone who wants to come help fight to contact their respective Ukrainian embassy. And that's how they can get out there and start fighting for Ukraine. There have been some diplomats that have uh, warned against this and said, hey, if you don't have any prior military experience, we caution you against fighting in the Ukraine. Notably in Australia, their diplomat said it's illegal to fight in Ukraine um, under the under a historic British law. It's, it's illegal to volunteer in a foreign army to fight for any reason. And in history, a lot of foreign volunteers have gone out, in, even in just the past 20 years, in the fight against uh, the Islamic State in the Middle East, fighting in Syria, Iraq, um, anywhere the, the Islamic State has been present, there have been many foreign volunteers. And when those foreign volunteers return to countries that were former British countries or former British colonies, they have often been arrested, but usually acquitted on all charges because their reasons for going to fight have been understood. And those those laws are technically still in place, but it's reported that 70 volunteers from the United Kingdom have reported for duty with more coming every hour and 50 have reported from the United States. Volunteers from Hungary, Canada, Denmark, Latvia, Norway, the Netherlands, Georgia, Germany. I mean, so many countries have volunteers heading to Ukraine. And you got to remember that Poland, Latvia, Georgia, and Hungary all lived behind the Iron Curtain and only 30 years ago. There was a story that a man who was 60 years old reported to be a foreign volunteer in the United Kingdom. It's very likely that people that age or maybe even older are trying to go and fight from these countries of Poland, Latvia, Georgia, and Hungary because they know what it's like to be oppressed by a Russian government, an oppressive Russian government, and it's likely that they they want to go fight also. I would imagine that many from Poland and Hungary are going to show up to fight because they were savagely oppressed behind the Iron Curtain for a lot of years. Many of these volunteers have no prior military experience, but neither do many people in Ukraine that are fighting. Just today I heard a story that uh, two women... Are, were standing in line to get some guns. One of them was a postal worker and one of them was a manicurist. They're not soldiers. They're just fighting for their country. And who's to say that people who want to go help fight need to have prior military experience also? If they want to go fight, they should be allowed to. It's just my opinion, but I believe that very strongly. That's my favorite story coming out today. Reportedly, thousands of foreign volunteers are trying to sign up for this new foreign legion. I'm interested to see how big it really does get. All right, some more monumental news today. The United Nations held a an emergency general session. Now, this is the 11th time since its formation in 1945, right after the end of World War II, that the United Nations has held an emergency session. So this is a pretty monumental situation. I spent the first three hours of work today with a headphone just listening to all of to the entire session and listening to diplomat after diplomat come up. I listened to people from Singapore, the Czech Republic, uh, Poland, Hungary, France, Canada, the United Kingdom, Panama, Brazil. I listened to diplomats from all over the place talk about what's going on between Ukraine and Russia and almost universally they were condemning it and calling for an end to the hostilities. The only 
The only country that I saw who did not directly condemn the actions was China, which is to be expected because Russia and China are such close trade partners. But I also found it interesting that China was very vocal about the fact that they did not want this war to keep happening. They didn't necessarily condemn the violence, but they strongly advocated for peace talks. So it was interesting to hear that. But hands down, my absolute favorite moment of this situation with the United Nations was when the Ukrainian ambassador to the United Nations got up. Now, I've gotten to know this guy a little bit, not personally because we're not in contact, because first of all, he's got a lot to do, and second of all, uh, I don't have his phone number or anything, but I've, I've watched him every single day I've seen him get up and give some speech about something at the United Nations, and it's been very interesting to see him kind of embolden himself and get more and more courageous when condemning what's going on between Russia and Ukraine because his country and his family is under attack. And it's been interesting for me to watch him go through this transformation in the last five, almost six days. So it's kind of crazy for me to think that this has been going on for six days. It Part of me feels like it's been years since this war started and just following how closely this, how closely, following so closely this conflict. Um, I can't imagine what the people in the Ukraine are experiencing. But anyway, my favorite part of this entire emergency session was when the Ukrainian ambassador got up. He was obviously the most fiery of any ambassador that stood up the entire session. And I was just listening to, I was just, I had my, it was, it was live streaming on YouTube and I had it playing just kind of sitting beside me, beside me while I was doing my work. I wasn't really watching it. I was just kind of playing it, but he sounded so fiery that I had to watch what was going on. And it's true. He was very physical. He was very angry. He was pounding, he was pounding the, uh, the pulpit that he was over. And it was just, it was invigorating to watch it happen. And during his speech, he said, when he was talking about the nuclear high alert that Putin had ordered his commanders to get to in Russia. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what was going on there, listen to the last episode that I put out. But he said in regard to the nuclear high alert, and I'm quoting here, if he wants to kill himself, he doesn't need to use nuclear arsenal. He needs to do what the guy in Berlin did in May 1945. And I'm sure you know who he's talking about at that point. That After he said that, I had to take a moment and pause the live stream and just be like, woo, he actually just said that at the United Nations. He called for Putin's suicide at a United Nations emergency session. And I think that shows, I think that's a pretty good representation of how most Ukrainians feel about this invasion. They are not afraid of Putin and they are not afraid of the Russian army. I'm sure they're nervous because they're fighting for their lives. But all in all, their will to fight for their country and their will to defend their homeland is much stronger than their fear of the Russian army, and I think their fear of death. They're a tough bunch of people, and they have proven that in the last few days. After this emergency session took place, uh, the news broke that the United States had expelled 12 Russian diplomats from the organization of the United Nations headquarters in New York because they claimed that these diplomats were engaging in espionage. This comes only maybe 48 hours after Ukrainian President Zelensky asked the United Nations to investigate Russia for genocidal activity happening in Ukraine and to label the Russian invasion of the Ukraine as a genocidal gesture. So, interesting things happening here, and I'm sure the, that Russia is going to treat that expulsion of these 12 Russian diplomats from the United Nations as a very hostile act, and I'm curious to see what Putin's got to say about that. 
All right, we've got two more stories to talk about here. Now, we're getting word in the last couple days of a large swath of countries who are sending military aid to the Ukraine. Now, normally when these wars start happening and countries have not necessarily anything to do with it, they send a lot of humanitarian aid. They send blood. They send food. They send blankets. They send, you know, any kind of thing that can help fleeing civilians or refugees from the crisis or the war but this is the first time potentially since World War II that we've seen this many countries mobilized to send arms and uh, other sorts of military weaponry to a country at war or under an invasion. So I've got a list of countries here who have officially been sending armaments to the Ukraine to help with the to help fight off the Russian invasion. And the, that list of countries is the United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, Poland, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Germany, France, Spain, Portugal, Romania, the Netherlands, Greece, Belgium, and the Czech Republic. And it's very, very likely that that list of countries is going to grow. Now, two of these that I want, three of these that I want to look at are Norway, Sweden, and Finland, particularly these three Scandinavian countries. They are uh, very peaceful, and they generally stay very neutral in these wars. I mean, Sweden stayed almost notoriously neutral during World War II. They did not get involved, and I'm, and I'm sure that Norway would have wanted to stay neutral as well had Hitler not invaded them, but Finland also wanted to stay neutral. The only reason they got involved was because the Soviet Union invaded them, so they joined the Axis powers, because, you know, Soviet Union was invading their country and killing their people. So, Norway, Sweden, and Finland are very neutral. They normally don't get involved in conflicts happening around the world that are not that are not directly threatening their own interests. And because they just generally keep to themselves, they usually just don't get involved. But Norway, Sweden, and Finland have all started sending guns and other weaponry to the Ukraine. And this is interesting because all three of those countries never send guns anywhere. They keep their own armaments to themselves. And they're not just sending maybe 10 or 20 guns. I mean, reports are that they're sending thousands of weapons and not just pistols or rifles. They're sending thousands of machine guns and uh, rocket launchers. Uh, some are even sending military jets to Ukraine. And so... This is just fascinating because Russia straight up called out Sweden and Finland, who are not part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and said, if you get involved in this, we're going to go to war with you. And the day after that came, the day after Putin made that threat, Sweden and Finland both appealed to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and said, hey, we kind of want to join you guys. Which again is interesting because they are almost always neutral. They do not align with any superpower. They say, we, we keep to ourselves. We're not involved with these squabbling things that you guys are doing. We're just going to keep to ourselves here. It seems like the era of Scandinavian neutrality may be coming to an end here. And uh, it's going to be important to watch that. That's a lot of countries sending armaments. We're going on the sixth day. This dawn is about to break in Ukraine on the sixth day of fighting. It's only six days and there are 17 countries sending military aid, not humanitarian aid. There's a lot more countries sending humanitarian aid, but we're talking about military aid. We're talking about guns. We're talking about artillery. We're talking about jets, all, all kinds of crazy stuff getting shipped into Ukraine to fight this Russian invasion off from 17 countries. It, it's almost like Ukraine is suddenly the most well-armed army in the world, 
because of all of these countries sending aid in. So Russia's going to have a really hard time with this invasion because of all of these guns and other weaponry coming in. And Putin's only making this worse on himself by threatening, you know, thermonuclear war, which would essentially spell the end of humanity as we know it. He's only making that worse for himself because people are sending more and more guns because they don't want Putin to win this war. I'm sure if he won, he wouldn't just stop at Ukraine. And the longer this conflict goes on and the more stubborn he seems, the more convinced I get of that. Okay, I've got one more story before we round off today. And this is about the refugee crisis going on in western Ukraine on the borders of Poland, Moldova, and a couple other countries that are taking refugees, but primarily Poland and Moldova. The refugee crisis that we're seeing here, we're looking at mostly Poland. And Poland was remarkably well prepared for this refugee crisis. They, Within the first 24 hours, they were setting up refugee centers. I think I said six of those refugee centers, maybe eight were set up within the first 24 to 48 hours, complete with food, medical supplies, beds, plenty of things to take care of all of these hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees going fleeing the country in the, in the midst of this war. But something going on on the, on the border I want to talk about a little bit because I've seen a lot of misinformation going on here. So on the border, there are some complicated things happening and it has to do with foreign nationals who are in Ukraine trying to flee the conflict. The two main bodies of foreign nationals that I want to talk about are Indian people living in Ukraine and other Africans living in the Ukraine. So I saw... Just about two days ago, I started seeing videos pop up of Indians going, uh, getting to the Polish border and getting turned away by uh, Polish guards or Ukrainian guards saying, we're not going to let you cross the border. You've got to go back into Ukraine. I also saw reports. I didn't see any video of this, but I heard reports and I saw a number of tweets that people of African descent or people from Africa were being turned away at the border and saying, we're not going to let you through. You've got to go back into Ukraine. Very quickly, obviously, we got a very nasty political situation in the United States right now and in uh, a lot of European countries where a lot of people are talking about racism. And a lot of people are very quick to say this is a racist country. These these Ukrainian people are racist. These Polish soldiers are racist. I can't believe they're this racist turning away all these refugees from Africa and India. I want to talk about this a little bit because obviously the situation is more complicated than that. Well, after I saw these videos, I put my feelers out on various social media platforms and I said, hey, I need some explanation for what's going on here. And please don't just say it's racism because the world and this situation in particular are much more complicated than that. And just slapping something with the label of racism doesn't solve anything and it doesn't help anyone understand anything. And what I learned from this and from listening to this, uh, to the to the Polish ambassador to the United Nations talk today, is that uh, two things. First, about the Indians. Second, about the Africans. First, about the Indians is that India has dispatched a large number of buses to take Indian nationals back to India as quickly as possible, or to take them to a neutral country so they can fly back to India. India has already taken care of their people. They've reached out to as many Indian people living in Ukraine as they can, which there's not there's not, I mean, there's probably not more than a couple thousand of them. They're mostly students in Ukraine and uh, foreign exchange students. India has reached out to all of its nationals living in the Ukraine, and they've dispatched a number of buses to get them out of Ukraine. The Indian government has taken care of that. And so the Polish government and the Ukrainian government, that's one of the reasons they've turned them back into the Ukraine, because they don't want them to be lost. And then the Ukrainian government have to try to pick up the pieces for that. Now, uh, the African people, uh, I listened to the Ukrainian 
ambassador talking at the United Nations today, and uh, she gave a list of uh, one of the Ukrainian or one of the Polish ambassadors. Sorry, my bad. The Polish ambassador was talking about the uh, the nationals who were coming into their country. And while they said, yes, many Ukrainians are coming into our country, they also said, we're getting a lot of people from Nigeria coming into our country. We're getting a lot of people from Azerbaijan and from Armenia coming into our country and from, uh, Syria coming into our country. Now she didn't say anything else after that, but from what I inferred from that was that there is a long history of people using, um, crises to cross the borders into other countries. Poland has straight up said, we'll take any refugees that are coming. The only, the only thing that you need is to be from, is to be coming from Ukraine. You don't even need to be Ukrainian. You should be coming from Ukraine. They said that outright. It's very possible that a lot of refugees from other war-torn countries are using this opportunity to get into Ukraine and get into European Union countries through Ukraine because of this crisis. And it's very possible that a lot of Polish guards who, um, Poland has seen a large influx of refugees from a number of war-torn countries in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, it's possible that these Polish guards don't want to let all of these people, all these refugees from other war-torn countries, use this opportunity to get into Poland because of it. Um, now, that's not racism. That's more tribalism, and I have talked about tribalism in the past, but using the term racism to label all of the people who are turning African and Indian refugees away doesn't help anybody, and it will not help anybody. These, the situation is far more complicated than that. And so uh, I felt it was important to talk about that to make that distinction. But this refugee crisis is going on on the western border of Ukraine. It's important to acknowledge that that's going on, and it's important to acknowledge that the situation is very, very complicated. So uh, if you see anybody talking about that on social media, talking about how the Ukrainian soldiers are racist or talking about how the Polish soldiers are racist, first of all, we're not there. We don't know those people and we are, we don't understand that conflict because we're not standing there as it's happening. So it, so please don't put a label on those people because you've never met them and you don't know what they're experiencing. Remember, Ukraine is in the midst of the largest ground war that Europe has seen since World War II and... They're under a lot of stress to do the right thing and to handle this refugee situation accordingly. They're processing tens of thousands of refugees a day on in, in on one border. And so they're probably cracking under pressure at times and not dealing with this the proper way. But again, I say again, and I cannot say this enough, shouting racism does not solve anything because the situation is more complicated than that. Okay, now I'm off of my soapbox. So... That's what we're seeing today uh, in the conflict between Russia and the Ukraine. Looks like the conflict is simmering a little bit just today besides the bombardment of Kiev uh, and the fighting in Kharkiv. Um, we're not... Uh, in a lot of the rest of the country, things are relatively quiet. Things I haven't heard a lot from the eastern part of Ukraine where the Donetsk and Luhansk republics are, the so-called independent republics. So I imagine the situation over there is relatively calm. Um because we're hearing most about the battle for Kiev and the battle for Kharkiv. So, I will update you again tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, tell your friends to keep everybody as updated as we can possibly stay. All right, catch you tomorrow.